Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this next episode of the Rehab Inc. podcast. My name is Kyla Alsbury-Neely. I am a PhD candidate in the Rehabilitation Sciences Institute at the University of Toronto, and I'm also a physiotherapist. Today, I'm joined by Zach Chan. Zach is a Toronto-based physiotherapist who operates his own home care business with a niche in 2S LGBTQIA health. After completing his formal physiotherapy schooling, Zach obtained advanced training in orthopedics, pelvic health, vestibular rehab, and contemporary medical acupuncture. He endeavors to stay involved with all aspects of the physiotherapy profession through his roles with the University of Toronto's Masters of Physical Therapy program and Ontario Internationally Educated Physical Therapy Bridging Program as a clinical instructor, lab facilitator, and research advisor. Outside of clinical practice, you can find Zach on an ultimate frisbee field or badminton court, checking out Toronto's latest donut shop, or walking around the city with his husband Mark and their dog Brady. Thanks for being here today, Zach, for this important conversation on 2S LGBTQ IPA plus health and rehabilitation. Thanks so much for having me, Kyla. I'm very excited to be here. Excellent. So first, Zach, could you help us to define this acronym for our listeners? Because I understand it's evolved over time. For sure. So it is the 2S LGBTQIPA plus acronym. So those letters stand for Q-spirit, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, pansexual, asexual, and plus. Other acronyms have been used in the past. This is not the only acronym. It's just what I believe is the most current and comprehensive one right now. And so that's what I'll be referring to throughout the conversation. That sounds great. Thank you for that. And I guess the reason why it's evolved over time is to be more inclusive, right, of these different sexual and gender minorities in the community. Absolutely. And Zach, can you tell us about your experiences working with this community? Sure. So this is something that honestly was not really on my radar coming out of school. I feel like it kind of landed in my lap. And then the more involved I got in this community, the more I wanted to be involved. So as a member of the community myself, I feel like this was something that I had kind of wanted to work towards in some capacity. But in my experience, what's happened is through connections and networking and things like that, I had gotten referrals from other members of the community. And then through word of mouth, they just passed my name along as a provider that they felt comfortable with and someone that they could trust in um, all aspects of their health. And that's a big barrier, I think, to a lot of people in this community. And now it's just sort of evolved so that I have a pretty large proportion of my caseload treating patients um, in this community. That's great. I think it's important for people to, to feel comfortable and to feel safe. So it's great that your clients have felt comfortable and have shared your name and your contact information. I think that's the biggest compliment you can get as a, a physiotherapist, right? Totally. Are there any health conditions that are specific to this community that you think other therapists or researchers should be more aware of? Yeah, so I think in terms of physio specifically, one, I guess it's it's not always apparent when someone in this community is part of the community. So, for example, if someone is transgender and they're female presenting, providers may just assume that they were born as a cisgender female and In fact, they may be engaging in practices like 
tucking or something like that. Same with trans men and chest binding or things like that. So in those cases, let's say tucking, sometimes you'll get this internal rotation of the hips to help conceal the tuck or with binding, it can increase your intrathoracic and then intra-abdominal pressure. And then you can get issues with pelvic floor or your core, things like that. Also for, let's say, trans men who decide to have a chest masculinization surgery, then there's whole rehab protocols and things like that to follow post-surgery so that they maintain their thoracic range of motion and their glomerular range of motion. And how did you learn about these conditions? Like, was it something that you came across in your clinical practice or that you were already kind of aware of upon graduation? That's a good question. I had heard of some of these gender affirming practices before. It wasn't really covered so much in school. It was just through friends who I knew who were also part of the community. And then in terms of specific rehab protocols, let's say post-chest masculinization surgery, that was just a lot of independent research and networking on my own. As far as I know, I don't think there really is like a best practice guideline for things like that. And so I've just had to talk anecdotally with other practitioners to see what they've done and, and liaise with surgeons and see what their goals are. Yeah, that seems like a bit of a gap, right? We have mm-hmm. protocols for, for so many other surgeries, mm-hmm. like ACL reconstruction, you know, rotator cuff surgery. So I hope that research is ongoing, but uh, I'm not aware of it myself. Same, yeah. <laughs> I do think there have been some pretty significant strides in terms of what I'll call bottom surgery. So where genitalia are operated on for gender affirming purposes. And I think here in Toronto, Women's College Hospital has taken a leadership role with that. And they do have set protocols and things like that. But I don't really know of something familiar for top surgery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I've, I've looked myself and it was hard to find to find some research on that. So we might have to connect afterwards if you have some additional resources. Yeah. <laughs> and what about with the additional training that you've obtained? So I know you, you've taken some courses in pelvic health. Was that something that was covered in those courses as well or not so much? There, there was one public health course that was specifically for trans and gender diverse people. That was great. I thought it was awesome. The only thing was, I don't know if the instructor was a member of the community. And not that I think that that's a bad thing. Like, obviously, allyship is very welcome. But I think it would be even better if there was someone who was a member of the community, especially if they were trans, to take that space and and occupy that role. Even when doing some of my own independent research and thinking of colleagues and things like that, I couldn't even really think of a trans physio that I would know. So definitely gaps for sure. Yeah, I almost wonder it would be nice to have somebody from the trans community, if not the instructor, you know, come in and speak to the the course attendees. That would be kind of a nice way to incorporate that, too. For sure. And I do think that did happen. They did have someone who did undergo a bottom surgery and, and speak about her experiences. And that was very valuable. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. So, Zach, what kinds of barriers do people in the 2S LGBTQIPA plus community experience when accessing healthcare? I think there's so, so many. I think starting from the beginning, I think there's just an avoidance issue. 
There was a study done, I think, 2010 called the Trans Pulse Project that was conducted in Ontario. It was more related to trans patients' experiences in the ER. Basically, they just asked what their experiences were, and so many of them had just avoided accessing healthcare when they needed it and knew that they needed it because they were scared of getting shamed or being judged or not being respected in terms of their identity. So I think access is is one. A second, I think when you're not being seen regularly by a healthcare practitioner, so let's say a family doctor, you're then also more potentially at risk for certain chronic conditions. You may not get blood work done as, as often as you need to, or you may not get your mental health checked out as, as much as you should, especially during these times. And so there's a higher incidence of certain conditions like depression, anxiety, and things like that. And then that can also be compounded by maybe some of your own life experiences. If you've experienced a lot of bullying or homophobia or whatever, it gets compounded. So those I say are, are the most telling barriers. I would also say maybe a lack of provider knowledge. So when they do go and seek out healthcare, they may not encounter a practitioner who knows what to do with this population or, or how to treat them with dignity, or they may feel awkward or, or something like that. Yeah, I think those are all really good points that you bring up. And it makes sense, right? If you've experienced discrimination in the past, it makes you more hesitant, I think, to go into those situations. Again, I think that's totally logical. And definitely in terms of provider knowledge, you know, I think healthcare providers, myself included, we could all probably educate ourselves more, both formally and informally, right? Um, there's lots of resources out there. You mentioned the the Trans Pulse Project, and there is a website for uh, that project. And there's lots of studies that were published as a result of that. So we'll link that in the episode notes as well uh, for people who are interested. So Thank you for bringing that up. Might there be also some kind of financial issues that might come up? I'm thinking around like surgery and rehab as well that that could be a challenge because rehab isn't cheap, is it? For sure. And that's what was going to be my next point was that when they do seek us out, our services are not cheap um, and there's very few that are OHIP covered or government covered. So I think there's already a bit of a disadvantage for this community in terms of employment. I think things are improving and getting better, but statistics show that members of the community do experience higher unemployment rates um, and they may not be able to attain uh, as high paying jobs as others. And then when it comes to surgeries and rehab, um, so now I think Women's College does do gender affirmation surgeries and I believe there's a clinic in Montreal that also does them. There may also be one in Vancouver that does them as well. I'm not entirely sure yet, but if it hasn't happened yet, it will soon. But those are the only three that I'm aware of that offer government-funded gender affirmation surgeries. Otherwise, the patients would have to go the private route, and these surgeries are, are not cheap. And then the rehab is not cheap afterwards either. The benefit of the private route is usually that you can get in a bit quicker. If you wait the public route, sometimes it's a year or two years plus, and there's a lot of steps you have to take before you even qualify for the surgery. Right. So it might take a while to even get on the list for surgery and then again, a wait, a wait list once you're on that list. And yeah, it could all take some time, totally. which again could compound some depression and anxiety as well if you're having dysphoria or other feelings like that. So yeah, that's challenging for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. 
Are there any specific concerns that you can think of which are related to physiotherapy care? Yeah, I think one is just the the nature of our profession is to be close to patients and to palpate and to touch. And especially in, in pelvic physio, there's a lot of touching of specific sensitive body parts. And the pelvic health courses, I feel like, do a really good job of educating practitioners on trauma-informed care. And I think that that was something that wasn't really ever taught in um, in physio school. They, they didn't really mention pronouns or terms in that way. But yeah, I think one is the physical nature of our job and the proximity of our job. Sometimes patients have to disrobe so we can work on a specific area and that can be triggering for someone. I'd say those are probably the most unique to physio. When you say trauma-informed, what does that mean for you or, or how would you describe it to somebody who that's a new term for? To me, trauma-informed is understanding that there is the potential for any patient, really, it doesn't have to be within this community, but any patient to have experienced some type of trauma in their life. In regards to pelvic health, I think it's a bit more relevant in saying that they may have experienced sexual trauma or abuse, and so it's just knowing, one, being aware of that, and then two, just being mindful of strategies to make that patient feel at ease. So checking in with them constantly, asking if they have, you know, any maybe red lights or firm lines of, I really don't want you to do this or, yeah. Yeah, I think that helps to clarify for sure. I think maybe for myself, I think of just not making any assumptions, right, across the board. And that's that's how it should be with any of our clients, right? Just not making any assumptions and making sure that you're asking for consent and checking in. I think that's a, a good rule across the board for sure. Yeah. So when you do your home care practice, um, how do you set up the clinical experience to make it more inclusive or more welcoming? That's a good question. So one good thing about doing home visits is that it's kind of in their space already. Um, and so they feel pretty comfortable in their space. It's also great for me because I don't generally have to do laundry. <laughs> I'll just tell them to get their towels ready and to get their blankets and sheets or whatever else I need. It's, it's almost more what I say before I get into their place. It's more in the tone of my emails. You know, I have my pronouns listed. I have pride flag and a trans flag. If they are already known to me as someone being part of the community, I let them know that I am as well. And then I, in my history taking, it's about, I ask them, you know, like, what are your pronouns that you use? What is the name that you use? It's okay if it doesn't match up with your health card, things like that. Just just showing signs of, of support and solidarity. And then in terms of my actual physical setup and biomechanics, I'm always making sure that I'm patient facing and looking at their reactions and things like that and angling of the hands to make it as, as safe and less invasive as possible. That's wonderful. It's been interesting being in academia now and a little bit less in clinical practice and seeing kind of across the board that people are are using their pronouns in their emails or on Zoom. That's been really nice to see. Yeah, I hope that that becomes a, a little bit wider practice. I think still in physiotherapy practice in the community, maybe not as much, but... Mm-hmm. Even when I started doing it, when I was asking them as part of my intake form, part of me was thinking, is this... Is this necessary in the sense that when would I really write a pronoun in their chart? You know, I would just usually say 
patient or something. I wouldn't usually write pronoun. But then I thought, you know, one, it's it's showing that they have this autonomy and I, I want them to know that they can tell me which they prefer. And then two, if I'm ever liaising with any type of other healthcare practitioner, then I can throw in the pronoun that they use. Sure. What recommendations would you have for physiotherapists in the community in terms of making the experience more welcoming for this community? I think there's a few different things that could be really simple. One is just showing signs of support. I mean, I'm in Toronto and I think Toronto is a pretty accepting place to begin with, but something as simple as like having a pride flag or a trans flag, or maybe showing some type of community support group or something on a bulletin board. I think a big thing could be just education um, of all of the staff. So not just physios, but front desk staff as well of you know maybe role players say how would how would we respond to someone whose health card doesn't match up with the name that they provided us or their insurance name doesn't match up with the name that they gave us or something and as you said before just to not make assumptions about anything i think there are a lot of what we term microaggressions or little acts that aren't necessarily meant to be hurtful or harmful but can be just by default and so an example of that could be oh uh my partner and they assume someone of the opposite gender or if you have a kid and they assume that the other parent is someone of the opposite gender or something like that. Right. And I think a big one, too, that's been, in my opinion, kind of a silly debate is washrooms, right? I mean, we're all doing the same mm-hmm. thing in there. Does it really need to be gendered, mm-hmm. right? I feel like that's one that is probably easily remedied in the clinic setting, too. Totally. And most intake forms, too, will say, what's your gender? And it's a binary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Yeah. So there's been a few situations in in the U.S., our neighbors south of the border, that have been a bit alarming. The situation in Texas, where government officials have been directing investigations into healthcare providers and families of trans youth who are seeking gender-affirming care. There's also the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida. Um, So all of this is, I think, pretty concerning. And a lot of people have said that this is really going to negatively impact the mental health uh, of youth. And I was wondering, related to that, how mental health shows up in your physiotherapy practice? Yeah, I think that it's definitely intertwined for sure. I think it relates back more to the trauma-informed care that we talked about. I think in particular of those scenarios you mentioned, especially the don't say gay, I think it's, it's just so sad because it's not just impacting queer youth it's impacting all youth because then those who aren't queer aren't going to learn about diverse families or learn about how to respect people in the community and be critical allies. So it definitely is an, an interplay. It, I feel like this could be a whole other conversation, but I, I do see that it, it is, it's definitely part of what I sort of treat in, um, in my practice. Sometimes it's especially the first visit. And in particular, if it's a pelvic health patient, a lot of the first visit is just unpacking a lot of the issues that they've had to deal with both physically and beyond. Yeah, it's, it's very alarming to me that it's 2022 and these things are still happening, but hopefully we're, we're pushing the needle in the right direction. So what kind of education did you receive during your master's of physical therapy program about providing care for people in the 2S LGBTQIPA plus community? Honestly, I don't feel like there was anything. 
there was one guy who came and it was actually a lecture on sex and disability. Um, and so there were several people who came in to visit with varying disabilities and they spoke openly and frankly about their sexual lives and experiences, which I also thought was really important because I think there is this again, assumption that people in wheelchairs, let's say, like can't be sexually active or something like that. So that that was actually a very good lecture. And then as part of that, one of the speakers I know identified as a gay man. And so he was talking about his experience with accessibility issues in bars and stuff. He was he was in a wheelchair. I think he had cerebral palsy. And just the the fantasy of this able-bodied, very muscular, athletic type within the gay community and how he didn't fit that type. And so people tended to just dismiss him. But other than that, I don't think that this was a topic that was covered at all. Right. Yeah, I think in my program, we also we definitely didn't cover this. I think we maybe spend a bit of time on providing like culturally competent or culturally safe care. But I don't think we really we dove into this at all. So it seems like a a bit of a gap. Mm. But Zach, I know you were recently a clinical advisor for a research project uh, conducted by masters of PT students at UOT. Mm. Could you tell us a little bit about that study and what you and your team found? Yeah, so this ties in very nicely. So um, the study purpose was basically to fill in the who, what, when, where, why of implementing 2S LGBTQIPA plus content into physiotherapy curricula. We had participants from several provinces. So this is hopefully meant to be as a, a guide or a framework that could be implemented nationally. And I think we we found a lot of really helpful insights from our participants. Basically, the consensus was it should be included. <laughs> and the more consensus was on um, implementing it kind of throughout the program. So it shouldn't just be a one-off optional one-hour lecture that happens once, but it should be integrated throughout and in varying different ways. They said ideally it would be it would be taught by someone who is a member um, of the community or someone who is a very significant ally. Yeah, those were the main the main points. I think. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really exciting. It's it's great to hear the the results of the study because I had the good fortune of being the teaching assistant for this group. Yeah. And- yeah, the students were so engaged. So yeah, it's wonderful to hear to hear the results. I'm very excited for people to read about this. And I think one of the big messages that really hit home for everybody on the research team was just the value of this. Um, and I think other people might think, of course, you should just like treat everybody with respect. And is there a need to even do this research? Like, isn't this just common sense sort of thing? But what our framing was in, in shaping our research question was really more about the heteronormativity and the cis normativity of society and structures and PT school and things like that. And so for those who aren't familiar with 
cis-normativity or heteronormativity. It's basically that being cisgendered, um, so having your gender identity match the sex that you were born as, and heteronormativity, so accepting heterosexual relationships as the norm, that's just pervasive and prevalent and the norm in our society. And that's why I think for so long there wasn't really any representation from this community or other minorities as well. This isn't just pertaining to the 2SLGBTQIP plus community. This could be for, you know, race or socioeconomic status or ableness and anything like that. But it was our approach in recognizing that cis normativity and heteronormativity that we really wanted to challenge of. Because this this could be helpful, but it's not really queer patients that we're focusing on it's everybody else <laughs> and that's that's the issue you know it's it's that our society is the issue in streamlining our thinking into this and that was super helpful in how we approach this research and so for um anyone who hasn't read it yet i highly recommend um stephanie nixon's coin model of privilege and that's how we sort of oriented ourselves in terms of our own positionality on um on privilege Thank you, Zach, for bringing up that paper by Dr. Stephanie Nixon about the COIN model. I think that's a a really interesting paper to read and I think is a a good one for anybody who's interested in this topic. And, you know, of course we need to be studying and talking about this, right? If people are still experiencing discrimination, then we need to be talking about it. We're obviously not talking about it enough, right? Can you give us just a brief snapshot about what the COIN model is and, and why it might be important? Sure. I I will try my best to make this clear and succinct. Essentially, what the model entails is it uses an analogy of a coin. So what tends to happen in this type of research is that they focus on people at the bottom of the coin or those who are disadvantaged, when really what we should be focusing on is not just the bottom of the coin, but both the top of the coin and the bottom of the coin and the existence of the coin itself. So the top of the coin is the opposite. So it's people who hold positions of privilege. And I should clarify that this is unearned privilege. So people are born into this because they are white or male or heterosexual or able-bodied. So in this field that we're speaking of, it would be the 2SL LGBT IPA plus community at the bottom. Um, I'll say cisgendered heterosexual for simplicity's sake at the top. And then the coin are the systems of inequality. That is basically society in curriculum, in case studies, in media, all this content that we're presented with. It's that everyone should be or it is normal to be cisgendered and heterosexual. So by focusing on only people at the bottom of your basically blaming them for all the problems. It's like, oh, because queer people exist, we have to do all these special accommodations so that they feel included. When really it's, why are we thinking only in a cisgendered and heteronormative manner when there are all of these other people who exist. And so to really promote change, you can't just focus on the bottom of the coin. You have to acknowledge that the coin exists and then try to abolish the coin. No, I really like your explanation of that. I've read the paper, but I think you framed it in a really, a really nice way. So thank you for that. So for our listeners who feel called to action by this discussion or this conversation, what steps would you suggest for supporting the 2SLGBTQIPA plus community? 
I think there's so much that could be done. <laughs> I think just from a, uh, an individualist standpoint, just be aware yourself of maybe some of the assumptions or microaggressions that you may be perpetuating subconsciously. So as best as you can, try not to make assumptions about anybody, regardless of how they're presenting. Two, I think if you're a healthcare provider, practitioner, even if you're not, just familiarize yourself with local resources um, that can maybe help support this community. So a really good one in Toronto is the 519. Um, and on there, they have a directory of LGBTQ IPA plus practitioners. So it's nice if you're if you have someone and you maybe aren't sure if you're the best fit for them or you don't think you have the expertise to treat them, then you can always direct them to there. I think, as we mentioned, if you work in a clinic setting, then just following some steps on how to make your environment the most supportive and inclusive that it can be. And just keeping up to date on on literature around this. I mean, I, I think it's changing all the time. It's getting a lot of traction recently, which I think is awesome. I am not really an expert on this. I, I think I'm part of this and I try and learn as much as I can, but I'm not the most on top of all of the acronyms and things like that. Like they change so frequently. So um, it's good to, to stay informed. If you work in any type of regulatory body, maybe try and challenge your your profession or your superiors or your association to, to try and promote equality for this community. Absolutely. And I mean, you and I are part of the the Canadian Physiotherapy Association, which supports our profession. I think definitely there's probably more we can be doing within the association too. Yeah, I, I do think the association is trying as well as the college. I know the college this year now has the option to input your your gender and your pronouns. And I don't think it's a binary. So there actually is some freedom there. And I know the CPA has sent out links and, and invite emails to help increase their equity, diversity and inclusion stats and status. And so I think they are making attempts, but there's still so much more that could be done. <laughs> it, in my eyes, there could be a whole division on this, you know, like they have a women's health division, but they don't have a queer health division. I feel like there isn't really a ton of representation of queer physios in general. Um, like they're not really presented in leadership roles or it's not known that they're in leadership roles. I feel like we could also maybe benefit from some type of mentorship or, or formal mentorship program or something just so that students and even new grads uh, will know that there is support or that there is a pathway to success in this profession. Thank you so much for your time, Zach, and, and for sharing your research and your experiences within the 2S LGBTQIA plus community. It's been really, really interesting. Uh, where can people find you? Great question. So I, yeah, I have my own home care business. So if you're in Toronto and you need some physio, regardless of your identity, please get in contact with me. My website is zachchanphysio.ca and my Instagram is at zachgchan. And those are the easiest ways to find me. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So we'll link those in the episode credits as well. Thanks, Zach. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rehabbing Podcast. To support us, please subscribe and rate our student-run podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play Music. You can also find us on our website at rehab.com. 
rehabbankmag.com podcast. That's rehabbankmag.com slash podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes on rehab research and practice. Thank you.